am I going to introduce a, a man who has had tremendous influence uh, and encouragement for so many of us in our community. And uh, many of you obviously know him from his advocacy work and GCN and all that stuff. Um, but the thing that uh, when I, we, we've been able to spend some time together and the thing that just keeps merging into my mind is here is somebody who has been tremendously faithful and has a deep, compassionate wisdom. Somebody who exemplifies this kind of uh, essence of Jesus of listening deeply to people who are literally across ideological, racial, sexual identity divides, religious divides, and being able to bridge that gap. And so I'm only upset that his book is not available now for all of you to get a hold of and read. It will be published very, very soon. I'm going to encourage you to pre-order that so you can support him and his work. But that was the reason why we brought him here is because for somebody who has lived in that space and had very difficult and challenging conversations and somebody who has been very influential for us and the journey that Spark has been on, uh, I just couldn't think of a better person. And, he, and just spending time with him, uh, I see a whole other level that I hope that you also see and appreciate some deep, compassionate wisdom, being very, very wise and thoughtful and compassionate towards so many people that he's come across in, in life. And we are absolutely thrilled and honored that you are here, Justin. So everybody, please give a warm spark welcome to Justin Lee. Oh, my word. I don't know how to live up to that uh, introduction, so prepare to be disappointed right now. Um, let me just say before I say anything else, um, I, if you don't know, you are very fortunate to have this church here. Um, I have just been so impressed just in the time that I've been here um, talking to Kevin and, and, and listening to him talk about what's going on with the church and, and sort of the church's vision and everything. And, and um, if you don't know this, as someone who travels around the country and sometimes to other countries and sees a lot of churches and has spoken in a lot of churches, this is a rare gem that's right here. And so I just hope you will uh, do everything you can to support this church um, with your, your finances as well as with your energy and with your prayers and with your love, because this is what the church ought to be. And so just I had to say that right off, right off the bat. So, um, golly, Pete, what do I tell you about me to begin with? Um, some of you, I guess, are, are already familiar with, with me. Um, you may know that um, I am uh, a Christian who comes from an evangelical tradition. Um, I do a lot of uh, public speaking, and um, the, I guess the one other big thing that everybody knows about me is that I'm bald. And um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I'm bald. I didn't um, choose to be bald. I... Um, I, I, uh, actually, I have a genetic autoimmune disorder called alopecia areata. I first lost my hair when I was four, so I was a bald little kid who wore hats a lot. And, oh, thank you. Um, and, um, 
And so, yeah, so I, I, my hair has kind of come and gone through my life. I usually keep my head shaved. I don't have any eyebrows. And it takes people a minute to realize that. And then when people realize I don't have any eyebrows, they always have questions. And then the next big question when they realize I don't have any eyebrows is always the same. And so I'll just tell you right now, yes, people do often confuse me for Whoopi Goldberg. And... Um, <laughs> Some of you are just realizing for the first time that Whoopi Goldberg doesn't have eyebrows, and now it raises all kinds of questions. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. So um, I have spent um, a lot of my time for working at kind of a difficult intersection, you might say. Um, this is a picture I took in, in Nashville. This is real. Gay church going one way and gay street going one way and church street going the other. Um, I... I'm, I'm gay, and um, growing, having grown up Southern Baptist, when I realized I was gay, it was um, a, an incredibly difficult realization for me because I didn't believe that Christians, that sincere, committed, devout Christians, real Christians, could be gay. And um, that's not the story that I'm here to talk about this morning, um, but but it has influenced a lot of my life that um, I realized that a lot of the the beliefs that I had about gay folks were wrong and that a lot of the beliefs that my church had about gay folks and about the broader LGBT plus add-on all the letters that you can community, um, a lot of those beliefs were wrong as well. And so I've spent the last 20 years of my life uh, both providing support to folks who realize that they are somewhere in the LGBT spectrum and Christian, or that someone that they care about is, or that their church needs to do a better job of having this conversation. And I talk to folks all over the map in terms of what they think about all of this. And um, that's resulted in um, a book that I understand some of you have read, um, that I wrote, which is called Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians Debate, in which I talk a little bit about my story and um, what I've learned about how the church could do a better job in how we support LGBT folks, and also what it is that the Bible says to those of us who are uh, gay, LGBT, and Christian. So that's something that I've talked a lot about, and, uh, and um, uh, I've spoken about for a number of years, and as I've done that, I've talked to a lot of folks who disagree with me um, on one thing or another. And I've had a lot of really difficult conversations with folks, and sometimes um, those conversations go really well, and sometimes they don't. Uh, and so over the years, I uh, have had a number of people say to me, well, I've, I've heard you speak or I've read your book, and you've convinced me that this is a conversation that my church needs to have, that my community needs to have. This is something I'd like to talk about with my parents or other people that I care about. I'd like to, to convince them to see things a different way or at least be willing to take a new look at, at things. Um, so how do I do that? How do I make that happen? And uh, that's not an easy answer. I don't know if you were expecting an easy answer, but that's not an easy answer. But I started reflecting on all of the um, experiences I've had and what's worked and what hasn't and the principles that I've used. 
And I thought, you know, I should write a book about this. And then, um, I don't know if you're aware, but there's been a little bit of political division in this country of late. <laughs> and as I've watched that, I've thought, you know, a lot of these principles actually can apply to a variety of issues. We, as, as the church, I believe, ought to be a model to the rest of the world about what it looks like to disagree on issues with grace. What it looks like to have difficult conversations with people who don't see things the way that you see them on issues that you deeply care about, where perhaps you would really like to change their mind, but to do it with grace, to do it the way that Jesus would do it. I think that's what we ought to be. And so um, I, I wrote a book uh, that's coming out in August with that in mind, and it's called Talking Across the Divide, and it's not aimed only at a Christian audience, although I'm very open about my faith in the book. Um, and it's sort of my take on how I think we could have conversations on difficult issues better. So Kevin asked, well, hey, would you come and would you talk about Talking Across the Divide? Uh, with, with our church. And I was like, gosh, well, I haven't actually done a talk on this book yet because the book's not out yet. So this is, you, you're the guinea pigs. I hope you're okay with that. Half of you are okay with that. Great. <laughs> so I find that when we have these difficult uh, conversations, um, when something comes up where you really disagree with somebody and you would really like to change their mind uh, and you just, you know, you're trying to figure out how do we address this, this disagreement, I find that generally speaking, most of us have kind of three tools in our toolbox, three approaches that we use. Sometimes we fight. We, we just, we argue, we yell, we, we try to like pressure or force. You know, politically, we may have a, a boycott or a protest. We, we, we do whatever we can to try to pressure them, to force them, to fight with them, to get them to do what we think they need to do. Sometimes you have to. Sometimes you have to fight for what's right. Sometimes we don't want to fight or fighting doesn't get us what we want, and so we decide to use a different tool and we avoid the issue, Right? <laughs> You know, you, you sit there at Thanksgiving dinner while a member of your family, who you love but don't always like, goes on and on about their view on something or other, and the whole time you're just, keep it together, keep it together, it's family, it's Thanksgiving, it's going to be over soon, they're going to go home, but you really want to argue with them, and you're trying not to, and you just, like, the, you find that the best thing is to avoid the subject altogether. Sometimes we take this to the extreme. Sometimes we find that there's someone we just can't agree with, and it's such a big deal that we can't agree with them, that we just cut them out of our lives entirely. I know people who don't have any relationship with their families because of issues where they just couldn't agree, and it became such an overwhelming thing that, that the relationship is gone. So sometimes we fight, sometimes we avoid, and then the only third option that many of us ever reach for is some form of compromise. We think, well, um, okay, you want this, I want this, let's meet in the middle somewhere. Now, all of these tools are sometimes the appropriate uh, approach. Sometimes you have to fight for what's right. 
Sometimes it's better to just not say anything or avoid the disagreement for the sake of maintaining a friendship, for instance. And sometimes you need to compromise and be willing to give a little and the other person gives a little and you meet in the middle. But there are some issues where none of these approaches are really great. Sometimes fighting doesn't get you what you want. You can't, it's too important to avoid the issue and there isn't any room for compromise. Sometimes to compromise on an issue would be to give in in a way that is not okay. Sometimes you might be in the right and someone else is in the wrong and doing real harm. And to compromise even a little bit would be to allow that harm to take place. And so none of these really are a great solution. And a lot of us, when we don't know what to do, we, we, none of these work, we just keep trying them over and over, and we yell more, and we pressure, and we cut people out of our lives, and we find ourselves getting more and more polarized in this country, where we have our social networks, online and offline, of people who think the way that we do, see the world the way that we do, and more and more, we just demonize and avoid the people we don't, until we don't even know how to listen to them or how to understand them anymore. So I want to suggest that there is another approach, that there is a fourth tool that needs to be in our toolbox. And uh, I call it strategic dialogue. Now, I'm not the only person who's ever used the phrase strategic dialogue, but that's the phrase that I'm going to use for what I'm talking about. Now, when I say strategic dialogue, a lot of folks say to me, well, dialogue, really? This is your great solution to the problems of the world. No, my, my solution to the problems of the world is Jesus, but that's a separate... Okay. <laughs> Um, but people like dialogue, and I think part of it is because we don't even always agree on what dialogue means. So let me say a word about what dialogue means. A lot of times when people say, let's have a dialogue, what they really mean is, let's just agree that everyone's opinion is equally valid. Everyone is equally right. You've got your opinion. I've got my opinion. Okay, you know, let's call the whole thing off. It doesn't matter, right? Um, well, that's great. If, um, you know, if you're talking about what's your favorite flavor of ice cream, sure, you've got your favorite flavor, I've got my favorite flavor, no one's right, no one's wrong, unless you choose butter pecan, in which case you're wrong and you're going to hell. <laughs> but we, that's okay, but on issues that matter, it's not good enough. It reminds me of... Um, uh, you remember that scene in Fiddler on the Roof? Tevia is like listening to these these two folks argue, and one of them makes one point, and Tevia says, "Oh, he's right," and the other one makes the op uh, opposing point, and Tevia says, "Oh, he's right," and an onlooker says, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, he's right and he's right. They can't both be right," and Tevia thinks for just a minute and says, "You know, you are also right." <laughs> no, that's stupid. Everybody can't always be equally right. And so if we know that, then dialogue often turns into, okay, you argue for your side, I'm going to argue for my side, and we'll see who wins. There's a word for that, right? Debate. If it's civil, it's a debate. Worse, it's an argument. But dialogue is not debate. And I'll tell you why. Because when you have a, a debate with somebody, um, if the whole time that you are making your brilliant argument that you are sure is going to change my mind, I am thinking, how do I poke holes in their argument so that I can make my brilliant argument that I'm sure is going to blow you away, right? 
we're each thinking about our own rebuttal while the other person's talking, and nobody actually, most of the time, convinces anybody of anything in a debate. Now, it's all well and good if you're debating in front of an audience, but if you're debating with the person whose mind you want to change, debate rarely changes minds. Rarely do people in the midst of an argument or a debate stop and go, well, actually, actually you're, you're absolutely right, never mind, let's, you know. It, it can happen, but not that often. What we really need in a dialogue, in a Christian dialogue, is uh, something Stephen Covey said in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Seek first to, be, to understand, then to be understood. That's really, for me, the guiding principle of a good dialogue. But when I say this, a lot of people say, well, no. I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't need to understand them. I already understand them. Why do I need to seek first to understand? What I want is for them to understand me. That's the whole point. Um, so we'll talk about that. But also, a lot of times we try to do this. We're like, go in with the best intentions to sit down and talk to that person that you disagree with on that issue that you really want to change their mind on. And their response, the minute you start to finally talk, is something like this. <laughs> you ever run into this person? No? Well, it's just me then, okay. <laughs> Often people are just not interested in listening, it feels like. They want to talk, but they don't want to listen. How do you make someone listen to you? In all of my years of doing this kind of dialogue, I've, I've, had, I've lost count of the number of people who've told me that, um, that something about our interaction, something that I wrote, something that, you know, some kind of engagement that we had, change their mind. I mean, I, I've had a lot of people tell me that I was a part of changing their mind on some of these issues around LGBT stuff and Christianity, which is in, in, it's overwhelming to have somebody, even one person say that. It's just like, really? Wow, that's awesome. And in all the years of having that happen, there's one thing that I come back to over and over again that I would say, if you do this one thing, this is the one thing that will transform the way you engage with people you, you disagree with and make you way more likely to be effective at changing their minds. And it's one simple thing that anybody can do. And it's like the most important thing you could take away from this morning. Listen. James 1.19 says, uh, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But we don't usually do that, especially when we're upset about an issue. We're not quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We're the opposite. We do this. We're like this guy. This is from a webcomic I saw the other day, and I liked it so much I had to share it with you. We're that guy, blah, 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 trying to change the other person's mind. And I love this comic. The guy says, hey, they say the eyes are the windows to the soul, and that when God closes a door, he opens a window. So what I'm saying is open your eyes and shut your mouth. <laughs> Uh, 
We all need that reminder sometimes. The thing is, we read this comic and we go, oh, I know who needs to read this, you know? (laughs) But we need it. Because we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So listen. And you say, well, they should be listening to me. Look, I'm the one who's being hurt in this situation. I'm the one who has the, the beef that needs to be addressed. They're the one, the, the person whose mind I'm trying to change, they've got all the power in the situation anyway. They should be listening to me by all rights. You know what? Yeah, they should be listening to you. They absolutely should. But you know what else? You can't change them. You can't make them do what you want. The only person you can control that you can change is yourself. So, listen and ask some open-ended questions to learn more about what they think and why they think it and listen and ask questions and listen and keep listening. And as you listen, you know, you start learning more and more about what's really motivating them. And maybe you find out that it's not just what they initially said. People are really bad about saying that something is the real issue when it's not the real issue. I was talking to this woman who was really upset that I do this gay-affirming Christian stuff. And she was like, well, you know, the, because the Bible says this and, and the Bible says that and, and it's contrary to Scripture. And she was, you know, it was a, a lot about the Bible. Now, as a Christian, I think the Bible is central to that kind of conversation. I mean, I absolutely believe it matters what the Bible says. But she kept going back to like the, the Bible, and she was, but she was really angry, just really angry. I've never seen somebody so angry about the Bible. <laughs> and the more we talked, the more I started suspecting something else. There's something else here. And so then she's saying something, and then all of a sudden she says, because, you know, I know, I know, because, because that's what happened with my dad. And I'm like, aha, okay, what happened with your dad? And it turns out that her dad had come out as gay and left her mom, her and her mom, and the situation had not been a positive, uh, had not had a positive outcome. And she was still hurting over it. There are many families where something like this has taken place, where there's been a, a resolution, it's been handled positively, but in her case, it wasn't. And so she was angry, and she was hurt. And so for her, this wasn't really just about the Bible. It was about her dad. And when we were talking about homosexuality, what we were really talking about was her dad. So you find, as you listen, that there's other stuff that people really care about, and there there are reasons that they don't see things the way that you do. And as they tell you these things, you learn more and more that makes you more and more effective. And when you've listened as much as you possibly can listen— then you've only just started. And this funny thing happens because most of the time, eventually, they run out of things to say. And the only thing left for them to do is say, so what do you think about all this? And then you say, oh, well, I'm glad you asked. Um, it's important as you listen to make sure, though, that you're not just waiting for that opportunity, that you really are paying attention to what it is that they're saying. But you may say, well, okay, I've listened. I've listened to this person that, who's, I just can't even. I've listened, 
but they won't ever listen to me. It never happens. And that does, that, that happens quite often. And I find it's often due to one of five, what I call barriers to dialogue. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of these five barriers and something I think you can do in each case. Um, and then we can talk about it more in a little while, if you want, during the Q&A. So the first one that I find comes up quite a lot is uh, what I call ego protection. You ever notice villains in movies are usually not very realistic? Like Disney villains, they're always like, yeah, I'm going to take over the world because I want to, and, you know. And it's just sort of like, okay, why? Because the League of Doom, of evilly doom, wants to take over the world. It's like, okay, who's, who says that in real life? I mean, maybe you can think of a couple of people, right? But, but for real, I'm not... We all have our own people who we think, that villain right there, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's easy, to, it's easy to go there. And there are people in the world, I mean, there are Hitlers who have existed throughout history. That said, it's so easy when someone does stuff you don't like and believes stuff you don't think is right to just paint them as that cackling villain and never stop to ask, why does this person want what they want? Why do they do what they do? What is motivating them? What do they care about? And so we may not think of them as a literal villain, but often the conversations we enter into with the people we disagree with, the, the thing that we do is we come right up against them with like this narrative. It's unspoken. We don't say these words. But the way we come to, come to them is like, um, you need to stop being such a villain because I'm smart and know the answers and you need to listen to me so that you won't be such a terrible person. And they are not particularly interested in that particular narrative. And can you blame them? Because nobody sees themselves as a villain. So um, very often what we have to do is really ask the question, what is it that's motivating this person? There's a, a famous illustration of two people arguing about whether a window is open or closed. You may have heard it before. It comes from uh, someone named Mary Parker Follett a number of years ago. And so she, she created this illustration of two guys arguing. One of them uh, wants the window open, and then the other one gets up and closes it, and then the first one gets back, back, right back up and opens it again, and they just come almost to blows over it. And finally, a third person says, wait a second, why do you want the window open? Well, because it's stuffy in here, and I want a, a bit of air. Well, why do you want it closed? Because every time it's open, the breeze is like blowing the papers off my desk. Okay, maybe there's a way to bring air into the room without blowing the papers off your desk. Maybe there's a solution here. But until we get to the motivation, it's just like, well, I know why that jerk wants the window open, because he loves seeing those papers get blown off my desk and seeing me go scrambling, that villain. And as long as that's your attitude, 
that doesn't mesh with somebody's ego. They're going to go, no, I am not that person. I'm a good person, so I don't care what you have to say. Sometimes what's really going on is that they care more about a, a team than anything else. And lest ye think that you are immune. There was a study done a few years back um, where they invited um, very intelligent students at an Ivy League school to look at uh, an article, a newspaper article, about um, a proposal uh, about a, a new welfare program. Now, the article was fake, but the students didn't know this. And the article either said that, uh, that the new proposal was a, a very generous welfare plan, more generous, in fact, than any real-world welfare plan, or it was a much more stringent welfare plan than any real-world welfare plan. Now, it might not surprise you to know that students who tended to lean to the left politically usually liked the generous plan, and students who tended to lean to the right politically usually liked what they called the stringent plan. Um, that wasn't a surprise to the researchers. What was interesting, though, was if they doctored this fake newspaper article to have it say that Republicans were overwhelmingly in support of this plan and Democrats were opposed, or that Democrats were overwhelmingly in support and Republicans were opposed, the students invariably, or at least almost invariably, overwhelmingly supported the plan that their party supposedly supported even if the details of the plan were absolutely contrary to what they had said their values were. So, if you told those most liberal of Democrats that Democrats supported the strictest, most stringent, least generous welfare plan ever put on God's green earth, they were in favor of it because Democrats support this. And vice versa, if you told the Republicans that this incredibly generous plan was being supported by Republicans. The political affiliation for these folks carried more weight than the actual details. This was true even if the plans were detailed side by side. But when the students were asked in a follow-up study whether their opinion had been influenced by knowing that their party supported it, they insisted that that had had no effect, that other people might be influenced by knowing that their party supported one or another, but they were not influenced. They made their decision based on the details of the plan, even though the researchers had manipulated and could prove that that wasn't the case. And they could tell you specific things about the plan that they liked or didn't like, which they had clearly decided after knowing that their party liked it or didn't like it. The thing is, we're all susceptible to it, even though we don't think we are. And so when you find yourself in a situation where you're arguing with somebody and, and it feels like you just can't see eye to eye, stop and, and listen. Is part of this that they think that I'm on an opposing team of some kind? I'm this kind of Christian and they're that kind of Christian. I'm part of this group and they're part of that group and our groups don't see eye to eye. So the fact that I'm coming from this perspective or the fact that I'm quoting this news source which is affiliated with my party and not their party or the fact that this particular issue has more to do with this group than their group, 
that may be actually the primary factor for them. And I'll tell you, one of the best ways to get past this is redraw the team lines. You, th- you say to yourself, or say to them, rather, um, talk about the things that you have in common. We're both members of this community, and as members of this community, here's something that's really important to both of us. We're both Americans, and as Americans, we're both Smiths, and as Smiths, one thing that we know against the rest of the world, we're both Christians. One of the things I do all the time when I talk to Christians about LGBT stuff is I emphasize our common faith. And if they're evangelicals, I talk about our common evangelicalism. And it's, it's not, it doesn't like magically make everything else go away, but it gives us a starting ground for having a conversation. But then you run into other stuff too, like this, I'm sure you're not aware of any misinformation out there in the world, but there is uh, quite a lot. Misinformation can take all kinds of forms. It can be someone has fake facts. Someone's got, someone's got wrong opinions about your motivations. Uh, you don't even agree on terminology. Um, there's a um, scene in the film, There's Something About Mary, where Ben Stiller's character, Ted, is arrested on suspicion of murder. They think he killed a hitchhiker. He thinks that they think that they're arresting him for having picked up a hitchhiker. And so they have this conversation where he says, oh, just my luck, I get caught for everything. And the detective is taken aback and says, oh, so you admit it. And he says, yeah, guilty as charged. Look, I know you guys have got a job to do, all right, and I'm really sorry. I did it. I admit it. You know, the guy even told me, the hitchhiker told me it was illegal. And the detective says, Ted, this wasn't your first time, was it? And he says, no. The detective says, okay, how many are we talking here? And he says, hitchhikers? My whole life? Oh, I don't know, 25? 50? I mean, who keeps track? Hey, you know, I know this is the Bible Belt and everything, but where I come from, this is not that big a deal. <laughs> there are a lot of movies that have this kind of play, this, uh, you know, uh, this two different characters are having a conversation and they're talking about completely different things. Um, but when this happens in real life, it can cause a, a real problem. I was, uh, a few years ago, uh, well, this was 2011, 2012, I did surveys on a number of college campuses in in, uh, evangelical-leaning parts of the country to learn about their views of LGBT folks, and particularly asked a bunch of questions about gay folks. So I asked questions, uh, gave them statements, and then you could agree, disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree. So for instance, one one of the questions was, do you think homosexual behavior is a sin? And you can see, uh, of the students who answered this particular survey, uh, it was, you know, roughly, roughly split. So you could see the green, uh, or on the left, if, if you're colorblind, strongly agree, agree, uh, strongly disagree, disagree. So it was, you know, about 50-50. And so I was focusing on the folks who said, yes, I think it's a sin. The conservative Christians I was focused on primarily. And so I asked them, well, do you think, for instance, that people... Um, can choose whether they're gay or straight. They have control over whether they're gay or straight. And we found that overwhelmingly they said yes. 
Um, I said, well, do you think that some people are born gay? And they overwhelmingly said no. 51% strongly disagreed. Now, you compare this to the LGBT folks who answered this same survey. And overwhelmingly, they said, yes, we think some people are born gay. Well, the point here is not about whether people are born gay or not. But you see, if folks in this group and folks in that group are trying to have a conversation about the most humane way for the church to talk about and respond to gay folks, they're not even starting with the same set of facts about what is it that we're actually dealing with. And can you understand why that might mean that they end up clashing without even realizing we're not even starting from the same set of facts? Um, likewise, uh, when we ask, do you think people can change, that orientation can change, overwhelmingly the straight conservative Christians said they could. They also said it was a sin to be gay um, even without sex, which really surprised me. Until I asked a follow-up question, I said, okay, what if you're talking about a guy named John, and John is attracted to uh, men, but he's married to a woman, and he's faithful to his wife? What word would you use to describe him? Now, the LGBT folks overwhelmingly said, well, if he's attracted to men, he's either gay or bi. About a quarter of them said, I don't like to assign labels to other people and that sort of thing. It was a very LGBT thing to say. Of the straight conservative Christians, less than half said he was gay or bi, and 20% said he was straight because he's married to a woman. So again, we're using the terminology differently. We're using words differently. So if we don't agree on what gay and straight mean, then if we have a conversation about, what it, about whether gay people choose to be gay or whether it can change or how the church should respond to gay people, all of a sudden we're assuming that we're having the same conversation and we're not having the same conversation at all. You see what I'm saying? This is why that listening step is so important because you assume that you're using language the same way, that you're starting from the same set of facts, but in fact you might not be. And you keep talking past each other and you're so frustrated, how can you not understand that I didn't choose to be gay? And then, well, because they don't even agree with you on what gay means. They think you mean something else than what you meant. One of the best ways to respond to this kind of thing is with stories. How many of you have seen E.T.? movie E.T.? I love E.T. If you haven't seen it, go see it. I mean, finish listening to me first, then go see it. <laughs> so E.T. is about this lovable extraterrestrial, comes to Earth. After you see E.T., if someone says to you, aliens are on their way to Earth right now, most likely your response is going to be, oh my gosh, I can't wait to meet the real-life ETs and find out what they're like. That's exciting. But what if your friend is like, no, no, bring out the guns, blow them out of the sky. And you're like, why? Why would you want to kill E.T.? Well, because your friend's never seen E.T., but he has seen more of the worlds. <laughs> we have different stories in our heads. And the best way then to address it is not to argue but simply to show a different story. Show your friend E.T. and let them learn about E.T. And then they have a different picture in their heads and, and you can start from the same kind of understanding of what, uh, who this is who's coming. There are a lot of people who, when they think about LGBT folks, 
when they think about Christians, when they think about people of a certain race or religion or social group or a political affiliation, the image in their heads is War of the Worlds. And maybe you're part of that group or you know people who are and you need to give them a chance to hear a different story. Stories are powerful. Jesus taught in parables for a reason, I think, because stories are powerful. And that brings me to uh, a barrier that doesn't sound like a bad thing, comfort. We all want to be comfortable, right? Except when you're comfortable with the way things are, this is another reason you may not want to listen to someone telling you that you're wrong about something. If someone's happy with the status quo and you throw a bunch of facts to show that they're wrong, you're starting from the wrong end of the conversation. Instead of... um, Instead of trying to, instead of trying to uh, convince them that they're wrong, you've got to give them a reason to be curious about what they might be wrong about. You've got to tell them the story of E.T. coming and being scared and the experiences he has before they're going to be interested in hearing more of the facts about aliens and so forth. You, you follow me on this? If, if, if they're happy with the way things are because they've got a different story in their head, you've got to give them a reason to be unhappy with the way things are by, by showing them where it's not working. I think a lot about uh, this shows what kind of stuff I used to watch when I was a kid, but um, there was an old TV detective called Columbo. And Columbo could figure out right away, usually, who the the guilty party was. And we, the viewer, knew who the guilty party was. But Columbo would not come right out and say, let me tell you how you did it. Instead, Columbo would say, okay, so help me understand what, what happened. And the guilty person would weave their lies. And then Columbo would say, oh, well, that, that makes sense then. That makes sense. Thank you for clearing that up, sir. I really appreciate that. Oh, one more thing, though. How could that have happened if such and such? And it was always the one thing, you know, showing them the one thing that didn't fit, the one thing that didn't fit. A lot of times this is my approach to these kinds of conversations. If I know someone's bought into something that's not true, um, I give them a reason to be uncomfortable with the story by, by pointing out one little piece that's not wor- working instead of saying, let me overwhelm you with everything that I disagree with you on. And the last uh, point where we run into these barriers is worldview protection. People often uh, run into this without realizing it. Uh, I think about people's views as like a tree. At the roots, you've got those things that are really foundational, those bedrock views. And out of those grow a number of deeply held beliefs, and out of those grow some assumptions, and out of those grow their behavior, their outward behavior, Very often, what we tend to do is we trace the behavior that we don't like or the the thing the person is doing that's bothering us all the way down to some foundational thing we disagree with them on, and then we attack that. So, for instance, I've talked to LGBT folks who talk to, say, a conservative Christian parent who believes foundationally the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and then out of that, The Bible condemns homosexual behavior, 
And out of that, the assumption that being gay is a choice and could be changed, like some of those people on that survey. And then out of that, you know what? I'm going to kick my gay son out of the house to save him. And they don't want the son to be kicked out of the house. And so they start arguing, well, the Bible is therefore not the inerrant word of God because that's what this is really about. And I say to them, no, you're going about it all wrong. If your neighbor has a branch that's dropping uh, leaves in your yard, you don't go out and try to dig up your neighbor's tree with your bare hands. Now, even if you're a person who doesn't agree with them on whatever their foundational view is, that doesn't really matter. If there's a way to address the, uh, you know, kicking their son out of the house by saying, you know what, even if being gay is a choice, even if it could be changed, isn't there a better way to address this than kicking your son out of the house and, and deal with it there? Or maybe talk about the assumption that it's a choice and could be changed. Talk about that assumption and, and work with them there. It, it, if you can deal with this stuff high up on the tree, you, you are in a much better position than if you go out and just say, let me completely change everything you believe about the world and how everything works. But it's, it's our natural way of doing stuff. So there's a lot of more stuff I could tell you about this. This is a lot I've just thrown at you, I know, and, uh, and I've tried to summarize some, of, uh, some stuff that I could talk about for hours in a few minutes here for you. Um, but let me end with, with this thing that I think this is really what matters at the end of the day. Romans 14, Paul talks about that we can have disagreements in the body of Christ but we're still the body of Christ. We may not end up at the same place, but we don't have to be in order to be a body. What we do need to do is to love one another. So even where we don't change minds, even where we don't agree, even where things don't go the way that we want, um, what we need is love. Love God, love your neighbor, right? The two great commandments. And I'm going I'm to leave you with this quote from Tim Keller that I love about love. It's the love, love, I love the love quote. Tim Keller says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It's what you need it's what the person sitting next to you needs. It's what the person you're arguing with needs. It's what we all need. And so if we can listen to each other, and if we can show each other love, even in the midst of that disagreement, let them know that they're loved and that they're known and that we care about who they are and what they believe, even where we disagree, I think that's where we as the church can show the rest of our culture where they've gone so wrong in their approach to stuff. So that's what I had to say to you, and uh, I talk about a lot more of this stuff in my book, Talking Across the Divide, that's out in August, and you can find me on my website, which is geekyjustin.com, because I'm a big old geek, and um, thank you so much for giving me a chance to share with you.